While it may seem to be like an elementary point to you, uh, it is worth remembering that the gospel writers did not merely record these stories so that we would read them. Yes, these gospels have a historical purpose. Yes, they are fact and not fiction. But it's not just mere history that they're writing. They're writing not just so that you can read and say, okay, yes, that happened. They're writing so that you will read Behold Jesus and be transformed by what you read. I think far too often we approach the Gospels thinking that Matthew's one and only goal in writing these stories in Matthew is just to tell us what happened. Yes, he's telling us what happened, but he is also telling us what happened so that we would see and behold Jesus, though we don't see him with our physical eyes, that we see him with our hearts. And that we will allow the gospel, the events that actually did happen, to transform us in the here and now. That's why Matthew writes. It's Jesus' slow and steady march to the cross that is meant to draw in our affections, to shape us, to prepare us for crosses of our own. You see, it's as we read about Jesus and those days coming to the cross and those days as he gets steadily near to Golgotha, that we find our own love and the adoration of our heart burning brighter and brighter for Jesus. And as that adoration and affection for Jesus begins to burn brighter and the light and heat just protrudes from that, that our lives are utterly transformed from one degree of glory to another. We are to be gospel Christians, not just people who explain, that, that, that affirm that the gospel is true, but people who live in light of that gospel. And so today, the agenda is simple. We accept Matthew's invitation to gather with Jesus and his disciples in Bethany. We accept the invitation to sit at the table and to take part in the Passover supper there. And as we do this, we're going to get to bask in some of the sweetest truth about Jesus' sacrifice. Even in Jesus' darkest week, we will see the bright light of the gospel shining for our salvation. Now, in Matthew 16, if you were here, Jesus began to reveal that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must die. And he must rise again. It's a part of a plan. And from that initial revelation, Jesus told, chose various strategic points to remind his disciples that he must die. He must suffer. That this is a part of why he has come. Now, this isn't just some kind of messianic defeatism, right? He's not just saying, well, you know, we all must die someday. You know, he's not, that's not what Jesus is doing here and reminding his disciples that he must die. Now, I, I don't think Jesus enjoyed suffering more than any of the rest of us enjoy suffering. In fact, the Bible says that he despised the shame, but he despised the shame and endure, endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. So he's got this sort of joyful suffering, knowing that his suffering is going to be the seed that falls from the plant, dies, is buried, and then produces fruit. That there are going to be lives that are saved, souls that are going to be brought to God because of his redemptive work in dying. So he endures this massively sorrowful event for the joy of having you as his disciple. 
for the joy of giving you eternal life. You see, the cross is the the seed of sorrow that three days later becomes the fruit of joyful resurrection. That's how Jesus sees his death. In Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2, Jesus once again looks at that mingling of sorrow and joy that lie ahead of him. He says this, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The statement's brief. We just have one sentence here. But it is packed with redemptive truth. It goes in and out of the Old Testament, New Testament. It has Old Covenant themes in a New Covenant light. And so we're going to just bask in some of the things that this little sentence tells us about God's work through Jesus. First, Jesus connects his death to the Passover. What a beautiful symbol. The Passover was the key symbol of salvation in the Old Testament. If you asked any Jew in the Old Testament times, what did it mean to be saved? They point back to the Passover. They point back to the Exodus. When God allowed the substitutionary death of a spotless lamb, the lamb dying in the place of someone else so that death would literally pass over them. Now, throughout the Bible, the Passover and the Exodus continue to pop back up. It was never just a merely past event. In fact, the Jews read, the Pas- read about the Passover. They celebrate the Passover fully expecting that God will do something similar again. By the time you get to the prophets, they're saying there's going to be another Exodus of which the first Exodus will be all but forgotten because the second Exodus is going to be even greater. And so the anticipation that there's going to be a greater Passover, a greater deliverance, a greater freedom from a greater oppressor that has more, uh, more joyful inheritance. All that is wrapped up into the biblical text, even in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes and speaks of his own death in light of the Passover. He, implic- he implicitly connects the two events and reveals that his crucifixion will be the Exodus-like redemption of God. He will be slain like a lamb. It will be because of his death that God's judgment passes over God's people. Simple truth, but profound. Second, Jesus reveals that though he is a king, he will die like a slave. He calls himself the son of man. And if you, if you've heard that title, son of man comes from Daniel seven, it doesn't just mean It's not just expressing his humanity here. It never does that in Matthew's gospel. Son of man is not meaning that he's just merely human. Son of man is the title from Daniel 7. Where in Daniel 7, you see this son of man, this this, uh, uh, figure who comes and approaches God himself and is given by God an all-encompassing, everlasting dominion above, above every people group, above every nation, and above every language. It's as if all of history is culminating in the ascension of the Son of Man. So Jesus calls himself that Son of Man. He is that King. At this moment, when he has come in history, as he is sitting at the table, as he's getting ready to sit at this table at the Passover, 
He is at this moment the son of man, the one who will inherit all things and enjoy a royal status above all others. He knows it. That's him. And yet the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Well, who was crucified in the New Testament world? It wasn't dignitaries. If you were any semblance of a normal citizen, you were beheaded, you were hanged, you might have been shot with arrows, but only slaves were crucified. It was seen to be such a terrible death, such an excruciating death, that if you were crucified, you were either a slave that had committed a crime, or you were an insurrectionist, and therefore had lost your citizenship, had lost any kind of dignity with Caesar, and you warranted the worst kind of death that that world could create at that moment, which was to hang on a cross by nails, to suffer under the sun and slowly, slowly suffocate to death. No Roman citizen. It was, it was blasphemy in, in the Roman world to crucify a Roman citizen. It was cruel and unjust punishment to crucify even a non-Roman citizen. Only slaves. By Jesus' own teaching, we find out that this lion-like son of man is going to die as a lamb-like slave. He is the lion of Judah who has dominion over all things. Daniel 7 says, All nations will serve him, and yet he dies like a servant. That is called condescension, where the high, the highest king you can imagine, the high prince of heaven, will condescend and die like a lowly slave. My friends, that is humility in its purest form. As Philippians 2 says, he is in the form of God, which means he has the nature of God very much in and of himself. He is God at the moment he takes on flesh. He was God before he took on flesh. He is still God when he takes on flesh and is born uh, in Bethlehem. He is God at the moment that he's preparing for this Passover. And yet he took on the form of a servant in his death. My friends, I think in this we see the nature of the cross. It was not something he deserved, but it was something that he willingly accepted in order to save who? Us. Just dwell on that the next time you're asked to do something humiliating for someone. Think about what Christ has done for you. Is there really any kind of condescension? We can, can we really out-condescend the Son of Man? I mean, this is the highest coming to the lowest to die for you and me who don't deserve it. It should have been our cross. We were the slaves to sin. And the king became a slave for us so that we could be made royalty with God. That's the beauty of the gospel. Third, Jesus emphasizes that his death is according to God's plan and not simply because of man's hatred. The word delivered up is kind of ambiguous. We don't, we don't, really know who he's talking about there. And Matthew's gospel, he kind of goes in and out because the word delivered up can refer to either betrayal or it could refer to God handing over his son. So delivering up his son. And we see both in, uh, throughout, the, throughout the New Testament, like in uh, Acts chapter 
through verse 23, Peter talks about Jesus being given over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Who handed Jesus over to men? Well, God did. God handed over his son to be killed by the hands of sinful men. Judas betrayed him, so Judas handed him over too. But I don't think Matthew was thinking about Judas's betrayal in this text. I don't think Jesus is speaking about that. I think he's talking about that general God is going to hand him over. He's going to be handed over to all things in this Passover type redemption are falling into line with God's sovereign plan. This is the way things must be done. He must, as the Son of Man, die slave-like, lamb-like, for the sake of filthy sinners like us. That was the plan God had made. So even in his death, as we know that this is the plan of God, we can ask, okay, God, why? Why? Surely there was some other way. Why hand over your son? I think the clearest answer that we get at the cross is he loves us. It's a clear display of God's sovereign love for his people. Of God's sovereign plan to let mercy win over sin, to let his son be crucified, to pour out judgment so that you would be satiated. That means you would be forgiven. You would be wiped clean. The debt would be paid. The record of debt nailed to the cross. It is finished kind of work for you. That's what the cross displays. So, what is Jesus' death like? Well, Jesus' death is a Passover. And in this Passover, just like the first Passover, we see several redemptive truths put on full display. The Passover wasn't there just to celebrate. The Passover was there to teach doctrine, to teach truth. Every time they celebrated the Passover, teaching was happening with their children. Teaching was happening with their families. Teaching was happening for the foreigner. Teaching was happening so that they would know what had happened so that Israel could live. We are given insight into several things like man's hatred for God. We're given insight into the infinite value of the Savior and the beauty of the salvation that he would win. And topping it all, we are given a glimpse of the grace-filled future that awaits those who trust in Christ. So we're going to consider each one of these truths as we and, and, and where they come from the text. Uh, in the next several minutes. First, the world's hatred for God. If Jesus' Passover does anything, it shows just how bitter man can hate God. What would we do if God stood before us? Matthew's gospel tells us. We would try to kill him. We would try to kill him. Natural mankind, in all of his Nastiness, natural mankind, and all of his fallenness and sinfulness hates God. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Had he done anything worthy of death? Well, no, but they're finding a reason. They're looking. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, these chief priests and these elders, 
and the high priest, they look like religiously devout men on the outside. But their actions reveal that they are just like every other sinner. They hate, hate God. Have you ever thought about that? That, that what is true of you as a sinner? What was true of you as a sinner? You might have been a relatively good sinner compared to the rest of sinners, but the fact about every sinner is that every sinner initially, inherently, naturally, vehemently hates God. Whether we actually accept that and know that or not, but that's, that's what's true about our sin. They, these men plot together, which should remind us of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, the psalmist asks, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers. And in, in, in this next phrase, in the Greek Septuagint, is the same word that we find as the, the Pharisees and the chief priests plotting. And the rulers take counsel together. They plot against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, interesting, the anointed one in this text is the Messiah, the Christ. That's what the Hebrew of anointed, the Messiah, okay? The Messiah. By plotting against Jesus, Jerusalem's leaders reveal their true identity as those who oppose God and rebel against his kingship. Now, what does this mean for us? My friends, without a God-initiated heart change, men and women are irreconcilably hostile to their creator. Irreconcilably hostile to their creator. Even with all all the religious elitism in the world, all the goodness, all the morality that we might have without a God-initiated heart change, it is still morality that is based in the hatred of God. It is still goodness, quote-unquote, if that can be called goodness, that's based in the hatred of God. Every sinner left to ourselves are God-haters and insurrectionists. I love the way that the Puritans used to talk about sin. Ralph Venning wrote an amazing book called The Sinfulness of Sin. He once described sin as deicidium, God murder. God murder. He went on to say that in our sin, every time we sin, we are attempting to un-God God, literally to dethrone him. You go to any sin, and you will find that this is true. Murder is the attempt to decide that God doesn't have the right who should live and who should die, that that right belongs to me. Stealing. God's not a good provider, so I will provide for myself. Lust. God is not the epitome of pleasure, and pleasure doesn't come from God alone. Therefore, I must take and eat of whatever fruit that I decide looks good to me. Every single sin is attempted God murder. Attempted dethronement of God, insurrection against the high king. My friends, unless you see your sin in that light, you do not see your sin rightly. Your sin is the greatest, most perverse act of rebellion ever known in the history of the world. Is insurrection against the high king. When God came in flesh, mankind's greedy craving for his throne drove them to nail him to a cross. You see, it was jealousy. 
at least from man's side. God allowed them to crucify his son so that they would be saved. But from man's side, what was the key motive? Jealousy. Covetousness. The king is here. We want his throne. The, the, the heir is here. We want the vineyard. So they throw him out and they murder him. I don't think we should think of ourselves too highly because we'd have done the same. Because we're sinful people. Why don't we? Why, why haven't we in our hearts tried to crucify the Savior now that we believe in Jesus? Well, that's because God has changed our hearts. He has initiated a change. He has brought about a change of affection for us. So now we can love Jesus instead of crucifying him. But left to yourself, you should not assume that you would not have been in the crowd calling for crucifixion. Because in your sin, you would have. But here's the good news. Even in spite of man's deep, deep hatred for God, we find that God's sovereignty marches on. You see, in Psalm 2, the nations and the kings and the rulers plot together. They take counsel together. And what does God say? Well, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It doesn't stop the enthronement. In fact, if these priests knew, if they only knew, their plotting is going to lead to Jesus' royal ascension. It is playing a part of. When Jesus says, it is time for the Son of Man to be lifted up, he's speaking of the cross, but he's also talking about exaltation. The Son of Man is exalted through his death. The Son of Man proves himself to be king on the cross. He is truly the king of the Jews, exalted above all in the eyes of all. They thought it was the key to his being brought down. And trying to bring him down, they exalt him up. Why? Because God planned it. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. And Jesus hanging on the cross on Golgotha is a powerful statement that the king has been enthroned nevertheless. Beautiful, beautiful gospel. God is sovereignly saving in the midst of our bitter hatred of him. Now, if if I'm God, I I would, I mean, the moment somebody starts to, just the fact that they hate me in the midst of me trying to do them good, that's going to be, that's going to be a real killjoy, right? I mean, have you ever, like, wanted to help somebody, and they acted like they didn't need your help, didn't want your help? Do you still want to help them? Not generally, right? But even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we had our hearts set on hostility and enmity with God, Jesus marches to the cross to die. My friends, if that is a simple truth for you, you have not taken a big, sweet dip in the grace of God. Those waters are refreshing when you think of it that way. You, the enemy, you, the hostile, you, the insurrectionist, you, the rioter against God's kingdom. And he died so that you could become friend and son and daughter. Now, in this Passover, we don't only see the world's hatred for God, but we also see a glimpse of the infinite value of Christ. We see this through the events that happened in Bethany at Simon the leper's house. Now, just as a small detail, this is totally a small rabbit trail. Pay attention to where Jesus is sitting. Simon the leper's house. Where can Jesus be found till the very last? 
places nobody else wants to go. Would you go sit in the house of a leper? Now, there's two things that come to mind. It's illegal, according to the Mosaic law, to sit in the house of someone who currently has leprosy. That's unclean. You can't do that. Jesus is sitting in the house of Simon the leper. So this is clearly a man that has a reputation of being a leper. So if Jesus sits in his house, it's implicit that he's been healed, but Jesus didn't heal him and move on. Jesus sits at table with him. Jesus eats with lepers. That's where Jesus sets up shop with the marginalized, with the broken, with the isolated, with the hurting. Up to the very end, we find him there. We see him when he comes, he's eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and all these people that nobody else wanted to hang with. And near the end of his life, where do we see him sitting? With lepers. He is consistent to the end. And it's at Simon the leper's house that this woman walks in with an alabaster flask of ointment and pours the contents on Jesus' head. Now, if we're to appropriately appreciate her actions, there are a few things you need to know about alabaster flask. Um, you ladies, I had to do research because I, I, my wife will not let me buy expensive perfume. But you buy expensive perfume, especially for myself. Um, uh, <laughs> if you buy expensive perfume in our days, it always comes with a cap that you can reseal, right? He's a... You pop it off and you use the perfume and you put it back on. Alabaster flask in those days were not made that way. Alabaster, the ointments, the, 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 the smelly good stuff, okay? The nard, that's a weird thing to name a smell good thing. The nard, right? It smells like nard in here, you know? Um, but it was the best smelling stuff that they had. And they'd put it in this alabaster flask, which is this thing that was like, like molded around the actual ointment. It, had, it was just one solid piece. So you know how you opened it up? You broke it. And when you broke it, there's no resealing it, which means you have to use it immediately. Otherwise, the ointment goes wrong. So it's good for a one-time use. We find out from Mark's gospel that this alabaster flask of perfume was, only, was worth uh, 300 denarii, which is almost an entire year's worth of income. How many of you guys would spend an entire year, year's worth of income on something to be used once, and that had to be used immediately. Well, this woman, we find out later she's Mary, has gone off and spent an entire year's worth of income on an alabaster flask. She breaks it and pours it on Jesus' head. Now, what would you have said about that? Well, I think if we're honest, a lot of us would have probably done exactly what the disciples did. Why this waste? Really, you're going to pour an entire year's worth of income once on Jesus' head? Here's the rationale for it. For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. My friends, this is a little application. There's sometimes we look sideways at the devotional acts of others, and we tend to start judging them, and we fail to see the reality that maybe their act of devotion might outweigh ours. All he cares about is serving others. He doesn't really care about, you know, things like giving money. We start, to, we start to look sideways at somebody else's devotion. And we start judging. And Matthew teaches us, don't do that. Because here's what we find out. This one-time act was never more appropriate. If, if, 
anything was not a waste. It was to do this. It would have been wasteful to sell the ointment and to give it to the poor, give the money to the poor. That would have been wasteful at that moment. It wouldn't have been the best. It would have been good, but not the best. What is the best thing to do with this annual income purchased ointment? To pour it on Jesus' head. He says so in uh, verses 10 through 13. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not uh, always have me. He's meaning it's, he's not talking about the spiritual presence here. He's talking about physically. He's just not going to be there with them uh, always like that. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, where this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I preached on this text in Chinese. Five, uh, I guess it was, how long have we been here? Maybe, I guess it had been nine years ago. I preached on this text, and what Jesus said has been fulfilled. Chinese people read about this woman's act. We have a group going to Malawi. This story is translated in Chichewa. Why would Jesus care that everybody, everybody read about this woman's act? Because her actions reveal his infinite value. Her actions reveal that Jesus is precious. Jesus is a treasure. And that we're to treasure him appropriately. When Jesus dies, and his death is going to come quickly in Matthew, Joseph of Arimathea wanted to bury Jesus, but he had to do it quickly, right? Because you get to a certain point on the, on the Sabbath day, and you can't touch dead bodies or you're unclean. So he has to take him from the cross. I mean, we're talking quick wrapping. We're not talking funeral procession. This is just a graveside real quick. Sing a few hymns, throw them in the tomb, roll over the stone, and that's it. So there's not this massive burial preparation, because if you look at the cultural times, burial preparations took many days. This just happened like in a few hours. Okay. So Jesus is like, yeah, she's going to go ahead and get a jump start on my embalming, you know, just, you know, because I'm about to die. She's going to commemorate my burial. That's amazing. He even looks at that act Now, did the woman know that that's what she was doing? I have no idea. There's no indication in the text that she did. But Jesus credits it as, this woman knows how to celebrate my death. This woman understands what it means to value the cross of Christ. And so we see in that just a call, an invitation to value Jesus. And not everyone does so. In fact, one of Jesus' own disciples is about to reveal just how little he thought of his friend. Immediately following this woman's act of love, Judas Iscariot goes to uh, the chief priest and he asks, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And the priests say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. Well, why is that important? Well, if you look it up, then you find out in Deuteronomy, I believe, Exodus 21. Exodus 21. You find out that if your ox got out, and it gored a slave, you would pay the slave's master 30 pieces of silver. So by happenstance, Judas happens to be willing to betray his friend for the price of a wounded slave. Contrast that with the woman who just spent a year's annual income on perfume to pour out on his head once. Not everybody values Jesus. Some treat him as if he is 
nothing better than a wounded slave. Just think of how hurtful that is. Many of us have been betrayed, right? We, we, we have had friendships, husbands, wives, children, whatever. And we, we, we know kind of what it's like to be betrayed. But think of the depth of this betrayal. Jesus was a close friend. Jesus says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Literally, he who's eating that close with me, that he touches my hand when, when we dip in the, the bowl together. Think of the last time you went on a guy's night out movie night. If you've ever been on a guy's night out movie night, there's two things you'll observe. There's always a seat between the guys. There's a one seat rule, right? And guys don't share popcorn bags together. I mean, I'm not going to invite Adam out to a movie and say, he who dips his hand in the popcorn bag with me, right? That, that is, I'm going to get my own popcorn bag because that is mine. But to have that kind of intimacy, to dip your hand even into a popcorn bag together, shows closeness of friendship, right? Well, Jesus is essentially saying that. This is a man who is so close to me. This is my friend. This is my intimate companion whom I love. He was betrayed by that guy. Treated like a wounded slave by that guy. But even in that betrayal, God's sovereignty is working itself out. The son of man goes as it is written of him. He does as prophecy says. Judas's devaluing of Jesus would lead to the cross and it would be on that cross that we would behold Jesus as the precious, invaluable, spotless lamb who has bought us with blood more precious than gold or silver. Now, I think these two stories appropriately summarize all of our reactions to Jesus. Either you come to Jesus with an alabaster flask, or you walk away with him, uh, from him with silver in your hands. Which one are you? Are you the one that comes with the alabaster flask and... Every moment given for him is no waste. Every thought, thought about him is no waste. Every sacrifice for him is not truly a sacrifice. Do you come with the alabaster flask or do you betray him subtly by disregarding him for a few meager pieces of silver? Our reputation, our relevance, our careers, our comfort, people's applause, our power. You see, sometimes we betray Jesus, and we don't even know that we do. None of the Gospels really tell us why Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus. It's kind of the mystery of it all. What made Jesus' close friend, the, the, the treasurer of the disciples' party, the one who held the money bags, what made Judas betray Jesus? We don't know, and I think the Gospels use that intentionally, because we could betray Jesus for anything. It could have been zealous national power. There's, a, uh, there's some historical evidence that Iscariot, belonged, that, that some Iscariot, a Judas Iscariot, might have belonged to a zealot movement, a national zealot movement that was ready to backstab the Romans. They were Sicarii, where they, you know, they carried these daggers and they would just slice throats as they went. So was Judas a part of that nationalistic power-grabbing movement? I don't know. If he was, then his motivation could have been this deep-seated disappointment that Jesus doesn't act like the Messiah. He's not killing Romans. That's not what we wanted. 
We wanted a Messiah who would rally the troops, make swords, and kill our enemies. So if he is a part of the Sicari movement, then he betrays Jesus because Jesus didn't quite give him the political power he was looking for. Maybe it was his greed. You know, we know that Jesus was in charge of the money bag, right? Maybe this was the last straw. Maybe he felt like Jesus was on on to him. You know what? This woman should have sold that money, should should have sold that ointment. That money would have been in the purse, and then he could have had the access to it. He was a thief. So maybe he just got tired of Jesus kind of blocking his greed, blocking his self-entitlement. We don't know. Maybe it was jealousy at the other disciples. We know they were prone to these bickering fights about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Maybe he was sick of Peter trying to trump him all the time. Maybe he's finally like, okay, if I, can, if I can't be the best, I'm going to be the best enemy. If I can't be Jesus' number two, I'll be number one in the ranks of his enemies. Maybe it was that. My friends, I think if you just do a little digging, you find that there are moments in our lives that we replay Judas's betrayal all the time. Where we trade the true treasure of heaven for a few pieces of silver. We treat him like trash. We treat him like a wounded slave who's not worth anything. My friends, he's the high king. And he deserves, he deserves even one-time expensive acts of devotion. These things that might cost you your reputation. These things that might cost you someday, might cost you your career. And ultimately might cost you your life. You see, he's worth that because he is infinitely valuable. And these stories tell us that. Matthew warns us not to repeat Judas's mistake. Instead, people all over the world are beckoned to be like the woman, to bring their alabaster flask and to value Jesus, to treasure him and him alone. We come now to the actual Passover meal itself. Jesus himself has said that his time was at hand, which means his death is right around the corner. He has connected his death with the Passover already. And now he sits at the Passover meal with his disciples. Everything at the Passover meal has symbolism. You've got the, uh, the bitter herbs that they eat that remind him of the bitterness of Egyptian bondage. You have the cheroset that represents the brick and mortar that the Jews used to be forced to make. You've got the Passover lamb. That represents the lamb that was slain so that death would pass over. Everything at the mill is symbolic. Well, Jesus comes as the ultimate Passover lamb with a symbol of his own. Here's what he does. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You realize creation began by God inviting his people to eat. You may eat from every tree in the garden except for one. Creation began with God inviting his creatures to eat from his joyful, overabundant provision. We interrupted that meal with our sin. 
And throughout the Old Testament, we continue to see glimpses of this reconciliatory work, right? We see glimpses of God trying to reestablish a covenantal meal with his people. The, the Israelite elders at Sinai eat a covenant meal in the presence of God. So you see glimpses of it, and yet you constantly see these interruptions. God reestablishes a dinner table. He rings the dinner bell and invites his people to come and eat. They sin, and the dinner is interrupted again and again and again and again. So the problem is, is how will we get a table fellowship with our God that cannot be interrupted by sin anymore? Enter Jesus. Here's what Jesus does. As Emmanuel, God with us, takes up the bread, says, take and eat. You see, what's happening at this table is more than just a a normal dinner, a normal Passover dinner. Everything Jesus is doing in this moment is meant to show us that reconciliation with God has been given, that table fellowship has been permanently restored. It cannot be interrupted again. Take and eat in the presence of God. You know, when I read the Bible, it's almost as if God only has ever wanted one thing, to be glorified as he sets the table and eats with sinners. It's almost like that's all God wants. God just wants to have a dinner party with reconciled sinners and to be glorified by that. How beautiful is that of our God? I mean, of all the selfish things he could want, it's impossible for God to be selfish because anytime he glorifies himself, we tend to benefit from it. He glorifies himself and he sets this amazing meal at the table and he says, you eat and be satisfied. My friends, do you hear the glory of the gospel? Do you hear why that Christians don't have to linger in the deep sadness of sin anymore? Dark days have already been broken through by this dawn of new creation. Jesus has brought us to the table and he offers his body and his spilt blood so that we can have reconciliation with God so that we may now take and eat. I remember a a time with a friend. I went to lunch with a friend. Um, I was feeling particularly low with this friend. This was years and years ago. And he invited me out to lunch. He could, he could tell that I was down. And he wanted, to, he wanted to talk with me about it. And I sit down and I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, I don't know what it was at the moment. I just remember it was just a really low moment in life. And I'm sitting with this friend and I start to explain, I don't know what's going on. He just, he just said, shh, 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 just eat. Just eat. It was the most awkward meal I've ever been to, Honestly. Definitely therapeutic. You see, he didn't take me out to McDonald's. He didn't take me to Subway. He took me out to this fine Brazilian steakhouse. And I'm sitting there. He ordered for me. Because I knew it was going to be on his dime. I would have ordered the vegetables because I don't like buying these expensive meals on somebody else's dime. He ordered for me. He said, you've never been here. You don't know what's good. Let me order for you. And out comes this fat steak 
Brazilian steak. Do I get an amen? Where's Ben Kettlin? <laughs> We're talking the glory. I don't know if Eden was in the Middle East. I know it's probably been transplanted to whatever nearest Brazilian steakhouse there is. This was a fine steak. I'm coming to the table to gripe, to moan, to cry, to weep. And he just says, we'll talk. For now, just eat. My friends, Jesus invites you to the table. He knows your hurt. He knows your wounds. He knows your guilt. He knows your stains. He knows your sins. He knows the things you don't even know about yourself. We tend to come to the table and we sit and we say, but Jesus, you don't understand. Jesus, shh, shh, shh. Take, eat. My friends, after a long, hard year of COVID, of political turmoil, of hurt, of isolation, of friendships being ended, of wounds being tossed back and forth. I mean, we were throwing missiles at each other long before Israel and Hamas did. Can you hear the voice of the Savior bringing in the gospel and just saying, shh, take, eat. I love Jesus. I love anyone that feeds me, but I particularly (laughs) love Jesus. And the fact that he connects it with his death is even sweeter. I am eating from his table because he died for that right. I am partaking of the wine of his blood. I am partaking of the flesh of his broken body. I am eating because he died. Just to think about that. Now, why did Jesus need to die? Why could God not simply overlook all of our sin I mean, surely this omnipotent God, couldn't he just pretend as if it never happened? Why does my table fellowship with God depend on forgiveness of sins? And why does forgiveness depend on a blood sacrifice? Well, think of it this way. If there is a God, and if he is infinitely good and perfect, then even the smallest sin committed against him is infinitely evil, right? Wouldn't we... Logically, that makes sense. Something done against or in opposition to infinite good would be infinite bad. Sin is infinitely bad. Infinitely bad things need an infinitely bad judgment, right? So a man goes through a supermarket in Boulder, Colorado and starts mowing people down with his gun. We're not too sorrowful when judgment comes, are we? Because that was bad. And it deserves a terrible judgment. Well, we have done something infinitely bad against God. We have done something infinitely bad against an infinitely perfect and good God. And therefore we deserve infinite judgment poured out in the form of death. Eternal death at that. So who must pay that penalty? Well, you have two choices. Either the one who did the sin, the one who did the infinitely bad thing, or someone else. 
But the thing about that someone else, the thing about that substitution is that it can't just be your average Joe because if average Joe has done infinitely bad things too, then any kind of death he takes on is justice. That's not grace. That's not salvation. He just gets what he deserves. So the only proper substitute that can stand in the place of an infinitely guilty sinner receiving the infinitely just penalty of God from an infinitely perfect God is an infinitely innocent and perfect sacrifice. A spotless lamb. And it's here that we behold Jesus. The infinitely good God himself took on flesh, finite flesh. He lived an infinitely perfect life and took upon himself man's infinite sin and guilt and drank from the dregs of God's infinite wrath and died on a bloody cross. Why? So that you could have infinite joy and forgiveness. He nailed it to the cross. You see, my friends, because he's the God man, God in flesh, there is no debt, no stain too dark, no guilt too shameful, no scar too deep that cannot be washed and made new in his infinitely precious, perfect, good blood. Just let it wash over you. You don't realize how I've lived my life. Shh, take and eat. You don't realize what I've done, what I did last week, what I did last night, what I did 15 years ago. Shh, take eat. In Jesus, God has kept his promise and remembers our sins no more. There is now no condemnation for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Why? Because your Passover lamb has been slain and death and judgment passes over you. Take and eat and enjoy. Now, if Jesus would have ended it there, I'm not sure we could call it good news. But he doesn't end it there, does he? If he just simply said, you know, guys, I'm going to die. Well, that's terrible. But he doesn't end even by talking about his death. He points to the life that is still to come in the future. Admittedly, this is a subtle detail, but this is why we've got to listen to even every whisper in the text. Details are important and redemptive here. He's passing around this cup. Take and drink, all of you. For it's my blood. And then almost parenthetically, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. It's another really simple statement. And yet it's profound. You see, he didn't just say, I won't drink of it again because I'm going to die. No, he says, I won't drink of it again until... That's a con- I don't even know if that qualifies as a conjunction, but that's one massive, I'm not going to drink it again, but I'm going to raise again, and we will have wine together. 
You see, even in Jesus' Passover, he gives us a foretaste of what's to come. You realize the beauty of the redemptive truth. Amos 9, 13, Joel 3, 18, Isaiah talks about mountains dripping with wine and God sitting himself down at a table and drinking wine and passing cups to you. Jesus taps into that hope. It says there is going to be a day that our king will sit at the table, not over the table, not under the table, not away from the table, at the table. Shoulder to shoulder with you, looking at your eyes, speaking to you and handing himself, handing you the cup. The overflowing sweetness of the goodness of God. You see, he tells us not just what his atoning work will provide by giving us forgiveness. He shows us that in his death, he's going to secure the lavish goodness of God for all eternity. You see, we tend to think of the cross as a past act that has no ongoing ramifications. Yes, we've been forgiven, but we think that that's the end of it, right? No, the cross has secured your eternal place at the seat at God's good table. Ephesians 2, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable. You know what immeasurable means? You can't measure it, right? Immeasurable means that, immeasurable means that it, it doesn't come in liters. It doesn't come in pints. It doesn't come in pounds because you can't put a measure to it. It's immeasurable. It just is what it is. God's immeasurable riches of his grace. Well, that's a beautiful sentence. But then add in the preposition in kindness. I don't really know what that means. What does it mean to be gracious towards someone in kindness? It almost sounds repetitive, doesn't it? What do we get? Grace in kindness, overabundant, immeasurable richness, in grace, in kindness. Well, to who? Toward us in Christ Jesus. Well, who's that? Well, that's you. You see, it's beautiful. He reminds us that there is still to come a table supper with God in person, God in flesh. God's goodness is already overabundant. But when we drink of the sweet wine of the new kingdom... God's goodness will be poured out and flooded over his kindness and then handed to us in a bottomless cup by Jesus himself. My friends, there's no profound applications here. There's no go do these 10 things and then live. I I think the simple application that these stories give us, the simple transformation that it seeks, is for your quiet heart to take, eat, and to drink of the goodness of God in Jesus. We're about to sing a song called Behold, uh, Before the Throne of God. Can you sing it as if someone who has tasted and seen that God has good? Can you belt it? Can we, can we actually sing it like we mean it? That God has taken up the bread, take, eat, He's taken up the cup, take drink, and we have been filled. That's all that he wants from us. Take 
eat. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you hand us the bread and hand us the wine. And you tell us to take and eat and to take and drink. Father, I pray that we will drink deep of the gospel. Lord, how often we set down the cup and leave it undrunk. Let us take it up to savor the sweetness, to enjoy its intoxicating effect of Jesus' love, and to bask in your overabundant glory as you have saved us in your Son, our Passover lamb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.